0: I'm mm-hmm. 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 mm-hmm.
1: They've made us a podcast uh, that's a celebration because Robin and I like celebrating things. It's a celebration of passionate people and the ideas that motivate them. Uh, I'm Helen Chereski. This is Robin Inns, in case you hadn't worked that out. And uh, in each episode, we have two guests. Here are two guests for this episode. And each of them is going to introduce us to two people Uh, Each, so that's four in total, one of whom, for each of them we know about, uh, Robin and I have had a bit of warning, one of them comes as a complete surprise because producer Trent likes that kind of thing. And um, we're going to ask them to tell us about, these people might be real or fictional, and we're going to be asking how these people have shaped... The lives and create the work and creativity and life of our guests. So it's about opening the wonderful can of worms that is our collective human history because we do like cans of worms here. I'm glad you mentioned
2: worms because I am wearing, I haven't been wearing one of my Darwin t shirts for ages. And as you know, one of my favorite hobbies is talking about the formation of vegetable mold through the action of worms with observation on their habits. Which uh, has anyone else read that book? That was Darwin's last book and it is one of my favorite fe- did never-
1: he, he play the trombone at worms or no something? he didn't
2: play the trombone there's uh uh it was the bassoon uh <laughs> and it but it wasn't him he made his son george i think do it uh and uh, and it was it's just it's honestly this cuz this you know what we hope is it, When you listen to this, you'll get excited about whatever different things you hear about. Well, no, it might be about worms, or it might be about interstellar activity, but this is the beautiful thing, isn't it? Which is, the more you stare at something, however mundane it might appear to be, the more wonderful it... Like, I've told you in the past, I I now have transcendent moments when I look at walls sometimes. Oh, yeah. I look at a really (laughs) Yeah, I was a bit bit
1: worried about you the first
2: time. No, but I love that. (laughs) Darlington Station has a magnificent wall. It has this beautiful Victorian wall, and you look at the hugeness of the wall because you've got to have time because the train will be delayed yeah. and uh, <laughs> and you look at it and I Start to think of all the hands that have been on, you know, on each of those bricks. I mean, it's what we've talked about. One of our guests is uh, Chris Jackson, who uh, there was a the revelation when we had Chris Jackson on the Infinite Monkey Cage was Chris started talking about licking rocks as a <laughs> geologist as a shortcut to working out which the rock and and Brian was like, oh, they're doing one of their jokes at the physicists pretending they lick rocks, and he wasn't <laughs> pretending. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> every single geologist I've met since this is not an idiot. Idiosyncratic part of geologist behaviour is it, Chris? That you I wouldn't say it's the central part of my role, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: is that
1: how you identify it? Like the secret sign? You've spotted is. someone just licking it a rock is. in like the, the corner, kind of, uh, around you know, licking walls?
0: It's like the masons of
2: science.
1: Yeah, well, now, if you see people out and about in London licking any of the walls, you'll know what's going on. Look, just yeah, I finish... don't
2: lick the wall of Darlington Station. That's a separate issue. Yeah. Uh, Only
1: on Thursdays. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, we are recording this at the Royal Institution, and uh, we would like to welcome the audience that we have here. Are you going to give a cheer? Audience in the room. Yes. <laughs> Well done, audience in the room. Well, I was going to ask you what you've been thinking about this week, but you've obviously been thinking about worms.
2: I've been thinking about worms, I've been thinking about bees, I've been thinking about bassoons, I've been thinking about uh, sharks. I've had a very, very busy week. Um, I have actually, (laughs) I've I've just started reading a a book about, uh, it's by uh, Jennifer Higgy, and it's about the uh, art... Uh, and great female artists and how they've used uh, art as a way of also sometimes delivering ideas of mysticism and expressing different ideas through sometimes. There's a lovely description of dance, that what dance is, is dance as our way of expressing the unfathomable, which I think is a beautiful kind of idea, so I've been reading that. And there was mention of Derek Jarman's Modern Nature, so I'm just going to mention because... Uh, It is about people who've inspired us and Derek Jarman is one of the people that when I was a teenager I was hugely inspired by because he had this garden in a prospect cottage in Dungeness where basically almost nothing could grow because here was this very, very pebbly, rocky beach but he very carefully chose the plants that could grow there, created a garden where no one would expect a garden. And I think there's a beauty to that story as well about the fact that here was someone he was one of. I think in the UK, probably the first like, well-known person to say that they had HIV. And I think there's a story of what that garden was saying as well, which is here he was. He's, you know, What can grow here? What can live here? I think it becomes actually an expression of his own tenacity. And, and, and will to live. And I, f- I find, so th- that, that's a few of the things that I've been thinking about. <laughs> oh, I, great, uh, that, I just, I, I love Derek, and, and I sometimes, I'm sure people here have got this number, and I'm sure our guests have as well, that sometimes there's certain names that you start to find out if you bring them up in conversation, no one knows who they are, and you're desperate for those names to live on because very often they carry with them stories which are, you know, very it's only the famous often, the most famous who get remembered, sometimes the most wealthy. You know, we don't have enough statues for librarians and for teachers and, you know, and for doctors and for geologists. We have too many statues for for generals and kings. And, you know, and so... a show like this, I hope, is part of it, is to to build the statues with words for those who should have them.
1: I love the idea of building statues with words. That is very beautiful. OK, we should introduce our guests because they're properly, because they've been seen on stage um, <laughs> for a while. It's not that we don't appreciate it. No, we're going
2: to do a Samuel Beckett version. They're going <laughs> yes. to like Vladimir and Esther, on the, our Didi and Gogo are going to be in constant thing. I presume at any moment now, a question will arrive for us. No, it never did. Welcome to existentialism in the R.I.
1: OK, right, so... Our first guest this week is Chris Jackson, uh, a geologist who will be a very familiar face uh, here at the Royal Institution, and of course lots of you will know him from Shambles Things. He was a Christmas lecturer the same year as me, which was 2020, it seems a long time ago now, go us. <laughs> uh, and he was a professor at Imperial College for many years, and now he's a Director of Sustainable Geoscience, which is a great title. And our second guest over here this week is uh, Kwame Asante, who has this wonderful combination of careers, uh, careers in both medicine and stand-up comedy, which is quite Quite a combination. That's quite impressive. And he's won lots of comedy awards, and you can see him on tour around the country. In fact, we we learned just outside that he'd recently been in Stockport, and uh, Stockport ready for it, I think. You can I'll have, have that
2: on your poster if you want. Yeah, has been Recently been in Stockport, <laughs> Helen Chersky, that is going <laughs> to...
1: Recently been in Stockport and Chris didn't go, in spite I of I only live being it. three I miles down the road. I live
2: in Stockport, so we only had
0: to go there for a few hours. I actually have to live there, so... LAUGHTER
1: <laughs> Let's not, let's not alienate all Out of on. our Stockport <laughs> listeners before we start. <laughs> um, OK, well, let's get started on the, on the interesting bit. So the point of this is to talk about people who were important to you along the way. Can I... Can go I, go
2: I wanted to ask, just because it's been brought up, this, hmm. the, the, the mixture of comedy and medicine yes. is quite an interesting one because obviously you have people like Graham Garden, who, you know, one of the creators of The Goodies and hugely successful on Radio 4, and you have people like Harry Hill, who used to have that great line. He realised that he wasn't quite right to be a, a doctor when at one point he had to tell a family that uh, he'd lost their father, and he started by saying, well, I'll tell you how I'll do the message, so give us a D, D, give us an E, right? And, <laughs> and that was... He used to have some very dark jokes, Harry. Sure. The, uh, <laughs> Um, my grandmother was on a life support system, but one day we had to turn the life support system off. It was either toast or nana. <laughs> so, um, but the, uh, so, But that combination of... You just traumatised
1: you know, half the room. In, uh, <laughs> I
2: don't think Harry actually is a method uh, comedian. I don't think he actually had to do that in reality. But, but that mixture of, you know, you're working in A&E, you are sometimes having to deal with terrible, terrible situations. Mm. And how much do you think that does inform the fact that then to go on stage and to do comedy, to make people laugh, to maybe sometimes go into sometimes some of the kind of bleaker areas as well and turn it into humour, how much do you think the two play off each other? Well, I think the two com-
3: uh, complement each other really well. Um, working in A&E, sort of balancing working in a busy A&E and then doing stand-up comedy, I don't get to do as much comedy as I'd like to, uh, but I'm actually quite blessed that my time away from the stage is... Uh, There's a lot of transferable skills in terms of A&E. There's a lot of meeting a lot of people every day. There's a lot of first impression making. You sort of walk into a cubicle and you're trying to get people to trust you very quickly so they can sort of open up to you and so forth. And that's very similar to walking up on stage and getting a room full of people to trust you. And and so I get used to meeting people, making rapport, talking. Uh, And then again, a sense of humour. I think there's there's a lot to be said about sort of you have to be a professional when you're medicine, but you also have to acknowledge that these are human moments, that it could be the other way around. I could be the person receiving bad news and sometimes using humour to sort of break the ice and connect with people and just acknowledge where we're all at at the time we're in is is helpful and so I think it's a helpful tool working in A&E definitely do you ever
1: ever have a problem with code switching you know there's this idea that you sort of speak in a different way in different (coughs) situations and I've certainly had a thing where I've walked into there was a very embarrassing situation a few years so in in the media world right you greet people used to anyway more before COVID you know you would give them a kiss on both cheeks right Mm. in the academic world you do not do that (laughs) (laughs) and I I met the head of my faculty at a media event (laughs) and both of us did the media thing and they went oh
3: <laughs> <laughs> do you
1: ever in, you know do you ever find yourself do you ever get it wrong do
3: you get it wrong i don't know i think to be honest with you i always find that because i sort of went and i into hospital and i sort of take on a very sort of serious, sort of solemn personality, but at the same time patients are always very disinhibited and they will always often sort of use humour to sort of address their own nerves in a hostile situation. And then I find myself on a reserve where I try not to over laugh as if I'm in a comedy <laughs> scenario, they make a joke, which is probably quite inappropriate, but then I can't be the professional belly laughing in a corner over it, so I find having to strike that balance is fun. <laughs> <laughs> also, there's something a lot bleaker, isn't it? You know, when, when a comedian,
2: when a joke doesn't go down well, they tap the microphone sometimes and go, Is this thing on? Mm. And that's a much bleaker thing if you're, you know, tapping I one tap of the. Tap the machines. patient <laughs> and make <laughs> <it>. yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's Tap the patient. Is, yeah. the, is this thing alive? <laughs> on, it can't bro. have been me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, let's, let's get to it. Get, we'll get, we'll come back to that. Chris, let's, have, let's, talk, let's talk about your first um, person who's been important to you. Tell us about this person.
0: So the first person who's been important to me in my life is a, a, a man called Robin Sedgwick. Um, so, um, none of you will have heard of him. Um, but, it, it, like, I wanted to invite him to this uh, fictional dinner, if you will, is um, because I think in your life there's, there are some sliding doors type moments. I know it's a cheesy film with Gwyneth Paltrow and so on and so forth, but out, outside of that, there is that term, sliding doors, where there is a moment in your life where literally everything sort of changes for you. Not that everything's predetermined, of course, but it's just that it's like a really, really almost chance moment. But then it really maps out the rest of your life. So Robin Sedgwick was my A-level um, geology teacher at a, a small tertiary college, a city college I attended in uh, in my hometown of Derby. Um, uh, I should say that my school I went to, uh, Nobaker Community School, didn't have a sixth form because it burnt down. Somebody <laughs> set fire to it. So um, I, we had to go to a city college. And Robin was the, um, the A-level lecturer there. And, you know, I wasn't a particularly uh, attentive student at school. I was really into um, science, um, but not very good at it. So I, science was my second worst GCSE grade. Um, just ahead of French, so I wasn't even a good, I'm not a good scientist now, but, um, you know, I wasn't a very good scientist, but I went to go and look for A-levels, and I was going to, you know, I was thinking about doing maths and geography, and, and I think it was history. And I just remember so clearly walking into the sports hall at the City College, and looking around, and I went to a table where, you know, the maths teacher's there telling you to come and do maths, and the history person's there telling you to do history. And then there's a guy there with a beard. He's just sitting there, nobody at the table, nobody at all around. And he had like a volcano and a dinosaur, a little rubber dinosaur (laughs) on the table. And I walked over and I just was like, oh, hi. And he said, oh, uh, are you interested in geology? And I was like, what is that? And he starts to talk to me about it. And then I left that room, having signed up to do geography, geology, and media studies, randomly. (laughs) Um, And that's then just set the course for like who I am today, you know. And if he hadn't have been so you know, convincing and compelling and almost lonely in that room on his own, (laughs) quite frankly. I might have just gone somewhere else and done something else. So, you know, I I do think there's those moments which deliver you to other moments in your life. And in that case it's delivered me to this stage because then I became an academic and a geologist and blah blah blah. On from there. So I
1: do love the idea of someone turning up with a, a, a small volcano and a dinosaur.
0: Yeah, was just he, he was going in pretty hard on the cell, really. You know, he <laughs> was like, I'm going to style it out with these two objects and went for it. But it was, um, yeah, and, I, and I, guess I, I guess I'm, you know, and, and just to follow on from that, you know, I, I became very close friends with him afterwards. So um, we became very close while I studied there for two years. And he sort of, even when I went to university, we sort of spoke. And then I didn't hear from him for um, about 25 years until I did the Christmas lecture. And um, I did the Christmas lecture, and then I got an email about a week after it was broadcast, and it was from an email address I didn't recognise. And it said, oh, hi, Chris, I uh, hope you're well. I just thought I'd check in on how you were. I can't believe how proud I was to see you on TV. And it was... Inc- mm. And, you know, talking about it now makes me feel quite emotional, but it was just incredible. And I hadn't spoken to him for, like, a quarter of a century, and he, and he was... And he was just amazed. He said, I can't believe that of the very few people I taught geology, because there wasn't many people in Derby studying geology. He's like, I can't believe you... Kind of managed to get the opportunity and talk about this subject so enthusiastically. So um, yeah, you know, I think it kind of came back round for me again that 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 brief and chance contact I had that how how important it was for me. Do you, uh,
2: I will felt ask you, me, Did you ha- were there any teachers for you? who you think might have changed. Because I always feel like, you know, sometimes when I hear someone who had a teacher that really changed their lives, I I didn't. I didn't have bad teachers, but I didn't have... I did have one who'd had a book of poetry published by Faber and Faber, which included a rude poem about his... (laughs) And so that was quite... You know, because obviously when you're 16 years old and then you find out, oh, yeah, it turns out Mr Forbes has written a book of poetry. Oh, you won't believe what one of them is about. I still remember one of the lines... uh, Mauve toads like hairy eggs. Anyway, so the... (laughs) I got mentioned a lot. So did you have either a rude poet uh, teacher uh, or an inspirational teacher?
3: I actually, on the theme of poetry, in Year 5, I had a... (laughs) 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 In Year year 5, I had a teacher called Miss uh, Miss Sheehan, and I I was really into writing poetry in Year 5, and I used to... And she was an English teacher, and she was very, really supportive, and I remember I had to sort of, like, weird sort of young vision of oh I, I want to write poetry and get published and I remember I'd like write all these poems and sort of like post and I'd generally post them to like say penguin books and I'd get a polite letter back behind like, that's not how you get published young man <laughs> <laughs> and so forth but, but then you'd be like oh no it's okay Kwame you try again you post your poems to all of these people and one day one day you'll make it and uh, looking back now I, just, I, I, I do find it quite funny and obviously naive how young I was thinking that was how it worked. But it was also nice to have a sort of push me to keep writing. And I don't write that much poetry now, but now I've channeled my writing elsewhere into my comedy and performance. I love that. I love that tenacity. I love that. I think that's really beautiful, the fact that you went, I'm just going to send
2: them to a publisher. Mm. And I think that already shows, you know, the fact that you go on stage now and, you know, all of those, which is that bit of... Don't just leave, you know, because I think there's so many people who would rather uh, say, I could have been this than take the risk of trying to be something and perhaps failing. You know, and, and, and actually, you know, that bit of, I could have been, is a very comforting kind of illusion to have. But that bit of going, you know, so, somewhere, somewhere in Penguin, you know, <laughs> in, in there, <laughs> in the cellar, I think he'd, is, he'd, you, you
3: know... a bit lower down, yeah. yeah.
1: Also, the important thing about that, I think, is that when you're creating, you kind of want to be heard, and sometimes it doesn't matter if you are heard, but you're sort of making it because someone might hear it. Mm and in a way having that push is quite it doesn't maybe it doesn't i mean I, i'm sure someone did read it and i hope they appreciated it but <laughs> it's like you had a reason to write mm. right and that yeah. that's a, did you feel that at the time like you've got a little mission
3: i did i think um i I wrote loads, and, um, I and yeah, like it was nice to have uh, that person in my corner. I think my parents were very... I think they, my friends have always been very sort of more academically minded, so I think they weren't necessarily discouraged of poetry, but they were a bit baffled as to why I pursued that as opposed to other things. So it was nice, and then come to school and have a teacher in like, yep, yeah, Kwame, go for it. And so that, <laughs> was, that was really nice. <laughs> yeah. Let's
1: come back to Robin, because I'm interested, because you like, you're a very outdoorsy geologist. and It does kind of have that reputation, but it's clear that one of the things that really drives you in geology is that you get to see it i mean in derbyshire especially right you can go and look at it how did robin introduce you to that as well or did that come later
0: yeah and i think robin did it in two ways so the first thing is he was the first person who took me into the field to actually see geology and geomorphology the the shape of the earth so he took me to a place called um, black rocks which is in a place called um, near cromford which some of you may have heard of in the peak district not far from where i grew up and he took me there to see the rocks so once you actually see that physicality of the of the earth history and the physicality of landscape that for me was really important in regards to the second thing he brought to me, which was a reason to do science. And I know that sounds odd. Like I said, I wasn't a good scientist. And I think I was partly not a good scientist because I couldn't see any value in it. I couldn't see any inherent value in chemistry or biology or maths beyond being able to add up and, you know, a few things looking how much change I got at the shop. But he actually said, there's this amazing subject. And if you want to understand the history of the Earth and how landscapes evolve, there is this deep science in it. Obviously, now I know that, but at the time... He brought me back into being a scientist and and I don't think I'm a particularly strong scientist now. I think I can do geology with pulling on the bits of science that I kind of understand to some degree. And he, he really gave me the confidence to believe in myself that I could be that thing. And I often think, you know, growing up where I did and 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 the kind of things that people did around me at school. Without Robin, I don't know where I would be now, you know, because he was the person who opened me up to a subject which I, until I walked in that room, I'd never even heard of. And without that, I might have gone and tried to do maths, might have tried to do physics, might have turned out to be very poor at those, and then i you know, you never know what might have happened from there. So he, 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 he gave me an opportunity to, to do
2: something which I wasn't completely terrible at. Also, <laughs> you—I I mean, I, well, I remember talking to you when, when I was re- researching the, the um, importance of being interested. The book that I did, and, and something that really stayed with me and hugely influenced the chapter I wrote about the nature of time, was talking about that time that you were in the Peak District and you saw this outcrop, mm. and you thought, "What is that? It looks—it seems to look alien within this territory." Yeah. And then found out that it was a coral reef. Yeah. And, you know, Derbyshire, of all the places you would initially think of finding a <laughs> coral reef, you know, well. that, that and Northampton initially seem unlikely, don't they? Those yeah, kind yeah. of things. Um, that sense of a palimpsest of time, so that when you're looking at geology, you can't help but feel the weight of all of the stories that have happened in there. You know, when, when you sometimes see, a, you know, well, like Rift Valley, of course, would be a great yeah, example. Yeah. Here is this, you know, the time machine of the rocks. It is. It's
0: incredible that... Today, you know, you could go and look at what life looked like 320 million years ago, what the ecology was like, and, you know, how the land was being built around us, or destructed by um, erosive processes, rivers and so forth. And I just, I just think it's the most amazing fit, skill to have, and I'm kind of like devastated when I find people who aren't geologists, because I just think it is like a superpower, Right. We can go back in time, we can look at things five kilometers beneath our feet, we can look at things on the other side of the planet which formed 250 million years ago. It's just bizarre what you can do with it. And it does pull you in that temporal dimension, you know. It is is—it is quite hard sometimes, even as a geologist, to really comprehend what you're looking at or how long ago it happened. And, But that is probably what the training of being a geologist is most about. It's not the science that allows you to do all the nerdy science bits. It's actually being able to exist in a really weird place where you're looking at something far away or trying to understand something which happened a long time ago.
1: I think you had a good teacher, because when I I started... I nearly did geology a couple of times, like when I started Cambridge. It was one of the subjects I did in my first year at Cambridge, and I wanted that. Yeah. And what I got was thin sections. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've never met a thin section, it's a very, very thin slice of the rock that you look under a polarised microscope and it's got colours, and then someone who already knows what it is comes along and tells you that it's that thing without telling you why. And it was the most frustrating but that, experience but in but the world. But I, think, but
0: I think that speaks to a lot of science education. It's, it's so abstract. It's like there's all these facts and figures and things and you know, there's lots of books on shelves and things to know. But I think it's much better to put at the centre of learning a prompt, a motivation, a provocation to go and find something out. You know, if you said, do you want to know how the world formed over 4.5 billion years, you'd probably say, oh, that sounds really interesting. And then you get onto the thin sections in like two <laughs> years' time, right? But the point is, you would have a motivation to get there. And I think that's, I think for, and you know, I was, you know I'm not very mature now, but I think as a, as a 16-year-old looking for A-levels. I need, that's, that's, the, that's what I needed. I needed somebody to tell me there's a reason to learn. And I think Robin, to a significant degree, gave me that. And, and I think that was being tensioned
2: by, you know, where I grew up, and, I, and I'm really grateful for it, really. I just think also it, it's that thing which, with so many different areas of curiosity which can be delivered too dryly and then they are lost for, for a lot of people if that happens. But you know, w- I remember the first time interviewing you and you had a, a, a big jar of rocks, basically. Yeah, you know, yeah. And that, and that <laughs> fact that if you have some of the tools of geolo- geological understanding, any walk that you take it's in the amazing. countryside, and you look down at your feet, and you look, you know, when I, when I it, where I was brought up is in the Chiltern Hills, and there's all of that chalk exposed. You know, a badger set over there, all that, expo- and you think all of that is, that has been life on the ocean floor, yeah. and even just little pebbles, I think you can pick them up, and suddenly you go, oh, here's another story. Here's another story.
0: It's great. I mean, it sounds weird to say, but, you know, the the glass jar that you saw is now in our our bathroom. So every time you walk out the shower, (laughs) you know, you look in the jar, and honestly, there's a lump of coal, there's a bit of granite, there's a bit of sandstone, there's a, a bit of limestone with a big fracture in it. There's just all these stories of our history, the planet's history. And you can just... It sounds odd to gaze at the jar and just kind of revel in that. And it sounds... You know, you just see a jar of rocks, but for us with our training, you just there's so many stories in there and it makes you feel kind of small right because these things have seen in Record a lot more than you'll ever do, you know. <laughs> we'll ever get around.
1: Well, it's nice that you've got a jar of pet rocks. Okay, <laughs> Mummy, let's who knows about, about pet rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I just out of interest,
0: does
2: anyone here remember? You do remember? It was the strangest thing, wasn't it? It was an American the eyes. thing, wasn't it? The the it eyes I, on them. Yeah. Yes. It was the like it, it, that and Sea Monkeys in the 1970s. <laughs> sea Monkeys were the biggest ripoff because we saw them you would see an advert in Marvel Comics and it had a man with a crown, like with gills who was smoking a pipe and if you he's thought
1: gills how you smoke be... a pipe
2: oh do you know what the thing is <laughs> you can do a lot with cartoons when you're falsely selling uh gilled pipe smoking creatures that turn out to be frankly little more than silt not even good a... silt with a story dull silt <laughs> got
1: this picture of a fish with smoke billowing of its gills now um Sea monkeys. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go on then, Kwame. Who's your, uh, your first person you're going to tell us about?
3: So, the first person I'd bring to this dinner party. Uh, so, being an emergency medicine doctor, a big part of my job is giving blood transfusions uh, for a wide variety of situations, from people suffering from incredibly heavy periods through to uh, people being involved in nasty accidents. Uh, and reading into sort of the history of sort of the medical uses of blood, I, fa- I came across a, a chap called Charles Drew. Uh, Who was a prominent African American surgeon and is also credited with being the father of the blood bank? Uh, Because he did a lot of work on sort of the research of um, how to collect, store, transport uh, blood samples and sort of helping patients with that. Uh, And sort of delving into his past, he's a really, I think. He was a really fascinating gentleman in terms of, sort of coming back from sort of humble backgrounds in uh, in Washington DC where he was born uh, got a scholarship to college through playing football then became a biology teacher ended up going to study medicine in Montreal um, and then found himself uh, in insert and then surgery back then was a lot more sort of academic and sort of the observation of a lot of patients what, what
1: time period are we talking we're about?
3: talking the um, so the 40s when he did most of his research uh, and so he did a lot of work into the um, why, like, what happened when people sort of sustained blood loss and why it was important to replace blood loss with, like, for, like, products, and sort of he then compared past techniques with, like, past techniques, current techniques, and he sort of then pioneered sort of, like, the gold standard blood bank at that time. Uh, Lucky for him, and unlucky for most of the world, a lot of his research coincided with World War II, where there was suddenly a big spike in demand for blood transfusions. and suddenly his research was very <laughs> top <laughs> priority for a lot of people. Uh, and so then he not only um, helped create the American uh, Red Cross Blood Bank, he actually then was the head of the Blood for Britain programme in the UK, uh, so, and helped supervise f- almost 15,000 blood donation samples, which was uh, converted to plasma and transferred for uh, British use over here. Uh, And reading into, I always find stories like his, especially in the context of America in the 40s, where you're sort of um, an African-American. His story is solid with all different examples of racial discrimination, not being able to study at certain colleges, uh, not being able to engage in certain medical programs. And even as the head of the American Red Cross blood Bank program, the organization was still insisting on racially segregating blood. Uh, and, not, and not letting uh, white blood and black blood be stored together, and they're also insisting on like-for-like transfusions. And he was advocating scientifically, he was watching patients deteriorate because of the unnecessary delay, waiting for the same-race blood, and it was on one of the grounds where he was widely believed to have resigned from the organisation as well. And I think to sort of rise to that level of prominence in that time, you must have had such an fantastic combination of A, academic intelligence, but then also be like ability and charm to sort of excel in a, in a world where people were ready to sort of write you off before you'd even opened your mouth. And I just find the story, it's really fascinating and inspirational, I think, for a, all sort of minority groups in STEM, be it ethnic minorities, gender minorities, to sort of, um, yeah, what he did at that time was really inspirational.
2: I think it's a, it's an important you know to to hear how recent that is mm. as well. Is that yeah. you know as as we see you know there's a lot of kind of a rise in in right wing voices and promotion of of of, of voices who I think would have been pro-segregation and we think how, what a short time ago it was that, you know, many universities had quotas Mm -hmm. so for for every, you know, in terms of diversity that there are, you know, whether it's great African American scientists, whether it's great uh, Jewish scientists, all of these people who may well not have got into the university because the quota was there and it seems to me that that, you know, that's why that story as well remains incredibly relevant as well, Mm -hmm. to go don't think that our minds have changed so much Mm -hmm. of what Popular culture could allow.
1: Yeah. yeah. And also, what an interestingly fundamental fight on the the question of the racial segregation of blood, because in a way, that's the strongest thing that says there is no difference. Like, it's yeah. a very deeply fundamental.
3: Yeah.
1: You know, just stop making it up, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and to be uh, to fight that fight not only with the racism but also to be making that much more, f- you know, this really deeply biological fundamental point, that's a yeah. that's a sort of existential crisis yeah. almost, isn't it, to yeah. be fighting? Yeah,
3: absolutely. And how
1: did he respond? Do you know anything about how he dealt with the situations he found himself in?
3: It was a big uphill battle. He was very vocal and he was very advocated and he was also trying to sort of look at the argument from both ways because there were sort of playing to the majority. there were white patients that were also deteriorating, waiting for specific race match blood when actually... Uh, a black person's plasma sample could easily save this person as well, and even just like, but even like sort of trying to come in from different angles. I think people were very set in their ways and just be like, "Oh no, 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 it's not how things are done," and you know, the thing, any excuse you get at that time. And I think he eventually he sort of he did step away from the American Red Cross blood bank program, and I think yeah, sadly for him, he wasn't able to sort of overcome it in this time. And it did eventually, I think, ten years after he passed away, they did acknowledge that, "Oh yes, fine, this is silly," and they reversed it. So yeah.
1: So yeah. it took that long till 10 yeah. years after he died. Yeah. It's
3: terrific, isn't it? Yeah. Can I ask about... I, I, I was reading something
2: about the fact that... Because I know he had a car accident, and yeah. I know that that happened. I think he did regular work in... Is it Tuskegee? Tuskegee uh, yeah. Or Tuskegee. A, and that fascinated me. First of all, why that was the place where he went every year, because I know of that as another story of kind of racism, which was the experiment which involved people uh, not being given... Um, medicine for syphilis when they thought they were and Mm. so I just wondered what it was about I don't know if anyone knows this story which was uh, uh, a group of African American uh, men all of whom had syphilis believed that they were being given treatment and actually they were a test group and they weren't being given any treatment whatsoever to find out what would happen and again I think that's the 40s the 1950s Mm. And I I was just interested to know why that particular place was this area where obviously different things in
3: terms of experiments with blood. I didn't know if you knew anything about that. So I think one of the reasons he was quite keen to uh, do a lot of medical work in that area and run clinics in that area is um, in terms of his own sort of education and teaching, it was a very fascinating population demographic to work with in terms of the the diseases and sort of how progressed diseases could get within that population, that community, and so it was really... He found it interesting to sort of study and also use as test examples to educate other physicians at that time. Yeah. And
1: just tell us a little bit. I mean, bro- blood transfusions now. I, th- th- clearly, there are blood banks who are still asking for donations. Mm. You know, it's not it's not as easy. But is it? It's just such a fundamental part of medicine. Now, yeah. Right. This is is it. I mean do you, do you think about it now if you give someone a blood transfusion I mean are you sort of are you so completely used to the idea that you just do it or do you still sometimes think you know this came out of a person to give to this person do you think about it anymore
3: It's I do find it it is a weird thought because it's it's one of those where blood, blood donation isn't sort of incentivized as a way you do rely on a lot of goodwill by large chunks of the public and I think but then when you get into sort of a life or death scenario it can be very critical sort of uh, can make the difference between surviving and not surviving and then to sort of to sit back and think you do become a bit detached with the thing actually the only reason why this unit of blood is here is because someone decided to give it up on a Saturday afternoon <laughs> and then have a squash and a biscuit afterwards <laughs> and like no, one was, like no one made that person do that but like thankfully they did and now thankfully this person survived <laughs> so it's like a nice sort of like altruism link in sort of the healthcare journey and it's so uh, yeah it's, it's
1: kind of funny in Britain isn't it that there's this really deeply fundamental thing but the important bit is the cup of tea and the biscuits <laughs> 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 Okay, Chris. Let's hear about your second uh, person.
0: So my second person is my is my wife, Victoria, uh, who is not here tonight. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I I, th- I think uh, you know I think there's the obvious reasons I want to talk about my wife. You know, just generally being great and everything. Um, I think I think you know having support and and referring to some of the things that Kwame is speaking about. You know, the racial discrimination, some of the challenges you have. Anyway, and then some of the challenges you have as a black person or any, you know, any minoritized group, having somebody to support you through that is really important. And, you know, my wife has been really kind of central in giving me that support around those specific issues. But I'd say more generally, I kind of wanted to talk about her because, you know, again, thinking about where you would be without people and what opportunities you wouldn't have been able to avail yourself of if that person wasn't there, because ultimately... It's through her sacrifice that you know opportunities come to came to me and come to me, and I am where I am but now. And whether you call that success or not, it's not for me to say. But um, I'm deeply grateful that um, she's kind of put up with so much stuff in terms of being a geologist who travels the world and you know goes and looks at rocks in different places and has you know. has There's uh, rocks in the bathroom. Has rocks in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Yes, I think, and I think it, I think it speaks as well. You know, the reason I wanted to bring to talk about her is, you know, when people, and I say this, you know, they try and pin accolades on you about something you've done or achieved. I think it's important to dispel that myth of lone geniuses, right? Or, and I'm, and I'm not saying I'm a genius. I'm just mean, when people are individually celebrated for attainment, I think you need to look more deeply than that and think about the chance encounters or chance happenings that have permitted them to go where they've got to. But they're not enough on their own. You also then need support and willingness of some other party often to allow you to then take advantage of those those chance opportunities. So I think in science we often, and in society more broadly, we, 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 we do love a, a genius, right? We do love to fetishise those who have seemingly been beavering away in a lab on their own and come up with this great thing, but you know, n- very few of those things would happen. I I would argue without having, like a strongly supportive, and if it need not be a partner, of course, it could be family, friends, it could be it could be a number of different things. So um, yeah, so for me, um, you know, she's been very very important just in terms of my career progress, but then especially over the last few years with, you know, an increasing Amount of discussion publicly about race and racism and identity, without her, I don't think I would have been empowered to speak out about those things as well as the scientific issues that I speak publicly about. I think being empowered and also having somebody like her who is you know white middle class woman, um, her vulnerability about her awareness of race and racism even though she's been married to a black person for (laughs) quite a long time you know she's very um open to what she doesn't know and 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 is and is open to having quite difficult conversations about what she doesn't really appreciate and what even though she's been next to me when things have happened how it's fallen on me and she's viewed it very differently and i think that's uh, i think that's very good and you know Again, we wouldn't be good scientists without all those people around us.
1: I think it's always a good idea, when you look at those stories of lone geniuses, to ask who was doing the laundry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the, but it's interesting. Some geniuses I've met, no one is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of glad actually that,
2: you, I'm glad that you've chosen your wife because some, cause we never know who the second person is, neither Helen nor I. So sometimes I think, oh, that's really annoying because I'd love to research that person more. That would have been so, creepy. So that would have been creepy, <laughs> yeah. If <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Victoria had started saying to you, there's a man outside you know the window. <laughs> yeah, there's a, he's, apparently he's been up in Stockport and he's been asking uh, people about me. So for yeah. once I'm relieved that I know nothing.
1: But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I often think with, uh, you know, and, and you and I have both had this where you were sort of in, uh, much more for you, and you've been attacked much more than me, I think, publicly, but suddenly you, you, you are in the public sphere. People know about you. you know, people you've never met know about you, however yeah. that works. And the difference, and I, I often think one of the advantages I had, um, I've always been quite independent, but part of the reason I could be independent is because I knew my family thought I was all right. Yeah. You know, and that's all I needed. You just need someone to think you're all right. And then it's a lot easier to deal with the other stuff. You need, you need yeah, an anchor. Take
0: it yeah, you need an anchor, but I think the anchor works in a number of different ways. It allows you to take risks in the way you're sort of describing, and it allows you to feel safe. Um, but it also keeps you humble. I think it gives you some humility because I think with recognition and opportunity can become a, a trajectory away from where you grew up or who you originally were, and, and you can become corrupted by by all of those things. And I think that person. Being your anchor, reminding you you're just the mess of a person you were at the age of 21, or you know, or you do come home and you're worried about things, or you you know you 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 are anxious about things, and they're things that the public or you know or people don't see. I think I think I think you know for me having her there to remind me of 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 of, of my normality is 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 a is a really powerful thing because then you can go and take those risks and you and you can. You can self-reflect more readily, I think, if you just realise that, you know, you're not special. You you do something, you have to think about what the impact is on yourself and other people.
2: Yeah, it's that thing, isn't it, which is, oh, yes. Oh, yes, Chris, to some, you are the person who did a Christmas lecture. (laughs) To me, you're still the one who left the fridge open last night. (laughs) Now we've had to throw away all the dairy products. Have
0: you you really not been looking through the window of our house? That's that's, that's literally the conversation.
2: (laughs) Who's, who is your surprise uh, that, that we, we don't know about? Who's, who's the influence? Well, I
3: feel like Chris has put me in a, slight, a somewhat delicate situation because my wife is in the room tonight. <laughs> 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 and my second person is not her. So. <laughs> I'll tell you what, in the yeah, edit, <laughs> <round>. <laughs> we'll change that No, bless yeah. my... Um, so my second uh, guest to this uh, dinner party is Nancy the Spider. And Nancy the Spider is a, some of you may be aware, is a prominent um, character in the African folktale, which originated from Ghana. Uh, And Nancy, through its, um Akan, Akan is one of the big sort of ethnic tribal groups within Ghana, and a lot of their stories are passed down orally, and, Akan, and Nancy the spider is a big, um, one of the prominent characters in these sort of orally passed on stories. And he takes on many forms, and he's most commonly depicted as a spider, and he's sort of no, most famously known as the god of trickery, of cunning, but also of wisdom and storytelling as well. Uh, and the reason why this is my second guest is because this is one of my one of my earliest memories of storytelling. It used to be my late granddad, Seth Asante, uh, would tell me and my brother these fables about Anansi the spider and how the things he'd get up to and like, how the villagers would unite against Anansi to sort of teach him a lesson. Uh, and my granddad just had this amazing ability to sort of like really draw a story out and sort of make you hang on every word and use dramatic pauses, dramatic silences, break those silences with uh, with laughter. Uh, and I think it, it's probably had a big effect on me because my own sort of brand of stand-up comedy. I like to tell stories. I like to sort of develop characters, draw things out as well. And I think I, I reflect look fondly back on my first experiences of hearing about Anansi the Spider. And also, I find it's better... I've I then have the opportunity to read up on some of his stories um, in preparation for this. And it's I find it fascinating how like what passes what passes as drama is obviously very context specific to what where the story originates and. Whereas now we've got sort of the Fast and the Furious franchise. We've got supercars and gunfights sort of tearing through the major cities. Whereas uh, the stories my granddad told me was anansi Nancy the Spider was like, oh, who's stealing all the yams? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think a Nancy's stealing all the yams. Like, we need to teach a Nancy a lesson. It's just like, and, it's just funny. and at the time we'd be like, oh my god, dad, did they, did they ever get the yams back, granddad? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, again, a testament to the storytelling, how something that might seem so trivial now became such a <laughs> such a big fable. So I, I, I love that. I yeah. think you've got out of it, by the
2: way, by not choosing your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you picked another human, it might be problematic. But the fact you've chosen a fictional spider, <laughs> I think you <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> take the pressure off. I find it... I mean, it's one of the things that I find very interesting, because I think that, you know, there are some places where... I mean, I would say in England, for instance, there's a, it's quite dismissive in terms of a lot of our myths. And, and we don't really, you know, we just say they're just fairy stories. And when I'm traveling around and when I go to, you know, places like Australia as well, and I see the richness of some of the stories there, and it seems that we've lost somewhere in our scientific literalism and, and, and linear understanding, that, that joy... Of, because I, I, I think you know when I think of English myths, I, 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 I just, I, I think we dismiss them and just kind of see them as, you know, even the King Arthur and stuff like. Wh- whereas I, I love because you know uh, the the Nancy stories. I've seen them in so many different places. Of course, they were an influence on, on Neil Gaiman, you know, with the Nancy Boys and all of those. Th- and it, there's a richness which gets lost. I sometimes think in scientific mm. kind of thinking. I mean, there's a saying that I, I had, I, I read about it, and I've got a
0: T-shirt, and it says. Magic is just stuff that science hasn't made boring yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in the scientists object. Anyway. But the, the, the interesting thing, though, I think about the Anansi stories, as Robin said, they've been dramatised. But what's interesting is they're continually refreshed. I think mm. the last—I can't remember there was a radio dramatisation recently, or a book, I can't audio book, can't remember. But it was—it was told in terms of the modern day. Mm. You know, it was—you know, people were flying on planes. It was set here, but they were the same. They were fundamentally the same stories. And there's something very human about that thing of. It is the same story. You know, you yeah. might put a different hat on someone or give them a different trans- mode of transport, but we're all just human.
3: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think um, I think I was, like, trying to... For example, one of the stories my granddad used to tell was about how the villagers would wake up and Yan was missing from their village, and so what and they suspected it was a Nancy, so what they'd do is they they erected a statue in one of the fields and then sort of plastered with lots of gum and s- sort of sticky fruit and stuff, and then a Nancy would sort of see the statue and then think, ah... Oh, I've been caught, and I was trying to attack it, and then he ended up getting sort of stuck to the <laughs> statue, and then the. Morning. All the villagers would come and ridicule him and be like, "Ah, never, never take i <laughs> It was all very yam-heavy. I don't know, my granddad. <laughs> <laughs> in the modern but, yeah. version. It's a Vianetta, apparently. Yeah. So, uh...
2: <laughs> but I love that, the prankster. We don't have enough prankster stories. I love you know the coyote, of course. In 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 a lot of yeah. kind of you know, <laughs> indigenous American thing. We have these wonderful ones with with coyote throwing his eyes to go and see. Yeah, you know, just yeah. And, and I love the prankster stories. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have in in terms of? Uh,
0: I mean I, I mean I yeah my parents are from Jamaica and Saint Vincent so they're from the Caribbean and um you know they I was born and raised here and my parents um kind of, how can I describe it as, you know, they fully threw themselves into being Anglicised, you know, when they came in. You here. were caravanners, weren't you, I believe? So weirdly, <laughs> yeah, so my parents went all the way through to being, like, kind of quite prominent in the Derbyshire Caravan Club. I mean, how, much, how, how British can you get <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as, a, as, a, as a Vincentian or a Jamaican? But I think, I think we... It's interesting, though, because, you know, I wasn't raised on those sorts of stories, Firstly, because I was, you know, it was just my mum and my dad were in the UK and me and my brother, so we were detached from a very extended family. My mum was one of four, my dad was one of seven. Um, so those stories kind of got lost. And, and I don't know if it's because they were just keen for us to, you know, kind of luxuriate in Britishness and to identify with the people most immediate to us. And, and they themselves were trying to do that as well. So those oral stories that they were undoubtedly told growing up as well, they didn't make it across the Atlantic. But, um, yeah, I never I never had that connection to where I grew up through stories, I've kind of rediscovered those mainly through reading and, and going back to, to Jamaica, especially, and, and 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 traveling around where my mum grew up, especially. So that's how I've tried to reconnect, rather than through stories. But I do like a story with a naughty character in there. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's really important. And does
1: your mum talk about them now? I mean, I don't know if you've ever asked her about that. You know that. No, I think I think
0: you know. I think my mum finds it kind of difficult to talk about back home. You know because you know. People, you know, her parents have died and, you know, she's over here. My my father's died over here, you know. So I guess she's maybe feels in a bit of no-person's no, no person's land, you know, between back home and and then the life she built here, which was with my dad, who's no longer with us. So, you know, whenever I try and flush out these stories from my mum about, like, her upbringing and... And, and, the, and then also the difficulties, going you know, that's Kwame's story, you know, the difficulties of being black and arriving in the UK in the late 60s. She's like, she always... She's a very, very positive person, my mum, and that's the story you get out. is a very sort of positive kind of story about almost how great things are. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I think, I think for her, it's it, you know, I, I'm still trying, I'm
2: still attempting to draw those stories out of her. Mm-hmm. I just think it, it, again, it's that the more stories you have, the more potential you have. And, and I, I, if you see what I mean, you know, the, the, if, if you, and that's why I think, you know, in, in the, I think we've talked about this before, you know, someone talked about in publishing that they were worried that we might not find the next John Grisham because uh, of diversification, you know, and diversity. <laughs> oh, God. And, and you're like going, well, or maybe you've missed the next yeah. John Grisham because yeah, yeah. the next John Grisham wasn't who you thought it was going to be. And I always find that now when I see, I think in a lot of art galleries now, we're beginning to see a lot more representation of female artists who, who've been forgotten, a lot more representation of art that is not traditional Western European styles of art. And all of those things seem to me to give us more implements to interrogate the world, so even pragmatically, beyond the fantasy, yeah. beyond the delight, it, I think it a- adds something so much to to what we can do. I mean,
0: oh, we're, yeah, cool. we're not being impoverished, are we, by that opening up of ourselves to the world and our opening up of ourselves to different sort of cultural imprints, you know, I, 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 I completely agree with you, but there is a comfort in the normal for some people that's keeping things the same is comforting, you know, as much as they're being actively hostile us, other people, some people just, you know, don't want to engage in change. and.
1: But it's also, I mean, stories are fundamentally about empathy, aren't they? Because you know, the thing about one of the reasons that Nancy, I think, is perhaps is popular, is that everyone sees a bit of themselves <laughs> <laughs> in that, right? You know, and they might not quite go that far, but they've definitely wanted to, <laughs> you know. And it's this kind of like it's an exploration of ideas. And I think, I think, I think there is some evidence somewhere that you know people who read fiction books are more empathetic in general because they are put into other people's heads, basically. Yeah. You know, I think the stories are not, it's not just a... I think there's our culture, you know, the West, white Western culture talks about stories as almost being frivolous things. Oh, well, it's a little story over there. And actually, it's the most, hum, it's the most human thing there is. You know, that thing of a hum, humans, the first human communication, you know, sharing was almost certainly someone sitting next to a campfire, talking, telling stories to a group, which told them who they were, how to think about themselves, what their traditions were and it came through stories, and we, um, we totally live in a culture that dismisses them, just little stories over there. You know, it's a story. In a way, I think we almost need a new word for a story, because we've, we've, we've damaged that one so much. We need a new word that says, look at this. It's, you know, it's like, it's like a, a journey into someone else's mind. <laughs> Isn't that a fantastic thing?
2: Yeah. What were your fairies? When, when, did you have bedtime stories when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, I think some of them were definitely out of uh, fashion now. Like, Enid Blyton's gone right out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, and, and Little House on the Prairie, actually, also gone right out of fashion. Is that now? Oh, the way, I think the way she wrote about um, Native <sighs> American... <laughs> I've never
2: read that. any of it, so... Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: I, I think... I, think it, I mean, it's one of those things where there's parts of those stories where you really empathise with a pioneer family living a life and then you hear what they're saying about, oh, those people over there who they obviously, you know, they, right. the way she wrote about, the way, you know, the way they behave, there was a lot, there's a lot of racism. <laughs> <there>? oh, <okay.
2: laughs> so Morrissey reads them a lot, doesn't he?
1: <laughs> Couldn't Are possibly you? comment.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm, what about for you, Chris? What were, you, what were your uh, uh, bedtime stories? Um, our bedtime stories?
0: We didn't used to have many, and I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> my mum and dad were nurses and they worked split shifts, so my... Mum worked nights, my dad worked days and my mum was at work when we went to bed and my dad was normally kind of watching telly or about to go to the pub and leave me and my brother in the house. So genuinely growing up, I didn't have, this is not a sob story by the way, (laughs) Um, genuinely growing up we never really had um, bedtime stories.
1: How about you, Kwame, apart from Anansi? Did you I hope? had
3: quite a similar background because my dad was a gastroenterologist and my mum was a midwife, And so my dad would work days and my mum would prefer to work night shifts again to help balance childcare. And so I think me and my brother just found ourselves watching uh, TV that we probably shouldn't have watched at the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think, yeah, a lot of primetime telly became our track stories.
1: And look at what it's made you both into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Culture all has a value. <laughs>
2: See, the only one I can remember is... Uh, I I never know if it's Peter or Strelpeter. Shock-Headed Peter. You know Shock-Headed Peter? No. I think it had a great influence on me. Uh, If you don't know Shock-Headed, it was turned into an incredible piece of work by, uh, amongst others, the Tiger Lilies. Uh, They are, by Dr Heinrich Hoffman, various different uh, warnings about how your life will... For instance, if you suck your thumb, the uh, long-legged red scissor man will come, Mm. and with his scissors, he will cut off your thumbs. (laughs) Uh, If you're Augustus, who refuses to eat his soup, you will die of malnutrition. Uh, Should you walk along with your head in the air, you will fall off the end of a pier. And if you play with matches, your kittens will cry over your ashes. Oh so man, those oh, were wacky. the things that, uh, and then they'd say, "Night, night, sleep well." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it, I definitely <laughs> see the influence of those stories on but me there was even a, now. There
1: was a very, like, there was a period from the Victorians onwards. Who, you know, there was a series of there were poems, there? Yeah. there were famous poems about the kids who all, you know, Matilda who told dreadful lies. Yeah. And and there was there was a very like. It's a way you of know. keeping
0: kids in line. I think, yeah. isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. I do think there's. I think there's.
1: Matilda told most dr- most dreadful lies. She used to. She made people you know scowl and stretch their eyes. There was a whole thing about yeah, that. Yeah,
0: you can imprint on children in in multiple ways. I think through <laughs> storytelling, and one of them is keeping them in line. And I am fully signed up to it. <laughs>
3: I can honestly say I've never once stolen a yam. So it's <laughs> worked. <well, I can't laughs> <be laughs> Straight and narrow. Straight what and about narrow. the viennetas? <laughs> the Vianetta IRI. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, well maybe, maybe we will have to finish there, which is very sad. But um Thank you to our audience uh, here at the Royal Institution. Uh, thank you to the Royal Institution for hosting us. Thank you very, very much for our two guests, Chris and Kwame. There, of course, we have to have a Patreon plug at the end. If you can, We want to make these things free. We want to make these things accessible. But if you can support us, we very much appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. And uh, there will be another podcast next week. So for everyone in the room now, please join us in thanking our two fabulous guests, Chris and Kwame. <laughs> they've made us was produced by trent burton and presented by me dr helen Cheresky, and robin ince this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network and is presented in association with the royal institution if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast visit youtube.com cosmic shambles to enjoy more great science podcasts documentaries and live events visit cosmic